Thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. I'm Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer at the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society in the Hagley Museum and Library. And I'm being joined today by Brian Sargenger, PhD candidate, University of Maryland. And we'll be talking about his dissertation project titled The Shareholder Movement, Shareholder Activists and Activism in the 20th Century, uh, for which Brian has received exploratory and Henry Boleyn DuPont research grants from the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. Brian, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh yeah, it's great. Um, I'll just introduce your project. Um, so Sargenter traces the rise of shareholder activism as an important factor in the structure of American corporate power, shifting control of firms away from management and toward a growing body of public investors. Activists organized around institutional investors in particular with disproportionate influence and leverage this advantage to pursue their interests. And Sargenter argues that 20th century shareholder activism reveals a wider set of values and interests besides narrow return maximization, including numerous social and environmental issues. So thank you so much Brian, for joining us, and I can't wait to hear some more about your project. Let's start. Uh, what is shareholder activism? So uh, shareholder activism, I think, can really be, I think there's like two competing images of it, because there's on one hand, shareholder activism can simply just be shareholders in a company um, trying to change management policy or to displace current boards of directors or to displace current management. Um, and this is, um, we're engaging in takeovers. Uh, and we can kind of see this multiple times throughout the 20th century. I think it got really popularized in the late 80s, this kind of activism with figures like T. Boone Pickens um, or uh, Warren Buffett as people, as the traditional shareholder activists, because they came in, they took companies that they saw were underperforming. Um, they bought up a bunch of stock in order to get a bigger uh, blocks of voting, voting to oust current management or to oust board, the current boards and put in people who are more sympathetic to them. That's one sort of form of shareholder activism. And it's kind of, I think, oftentimes when people hear it, that's what they think of. Uh, and there's this other form of shareholder activism that has, also has an equally long history of saying of shareholders who use the same mechanisms. They have their shares and they go to meetings and they propose new directors or they propose votes on resolutions for changing corporate policy, but instead of it being solely about, um, you know, increasing the dividend or making more, making the company more profitable, it focuses on other things. Uh, and these can be um, environmental concerns. These can be consumer concerns. These can be regulatory and safety concerns. They can be about um, equal employment or affirmative action policies. They could be, uh, uh, and I think really significantly uh, towards the end of the late seventies and early eighties, I think really common, example of this is the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa with divestment of you know, shareholders going to meetings and trying to get companies to um, divest from South Africa to um, end the sales of equipment and goods to the South African government or the South African military or the South African police or to um, do something. Um, there's this famous uh, 
uh, he's a director from um, General Motors, Leon, Reverend Leon Sullivan, who I think some people might be familiar with. And I mean, you may have interviewed a woman who's doing a dissertation on Leon Sullivan. I, I can't remember if she had appeared on this project, on this um, show. Um, but the adopting the Sullivan principles and the Sullivan principles were just a list of things that companies, all companies should abide by if they're doing business in South Africa. Uh, and so that can be like an example of sort of um, the pop, like this other kind of shareholder activism. And I would even go so I would even add, at least in these early stages, I guess I can take back to like the beginning of what got me interested in this project in like the late thirties and early forties and kind of going through this thing, it still carries on. It, it's become less of a, um, it's become less of a focus point now, but it was something that was really important in the middle of the 20th century, which is this idea of shareholder democracy or corporate democracy. And the idea is that, you know, shareholders, some of these activists that I'm looking at um, are going to meetings and proposing resolutions or voting on different boards of management because they want to make the corporation more democratic and also more reflective of political democracy. So it would be things like, so shareholder democracy, um, and they call it, sometimes they call it corporate democracy. I think shareholder democracy is the term I like to use because I think, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's one that they use a lot. And so I think it's just something that um, I think as I write, I have to make a choice about how I want to use this term. But uh, huh. it, it's, um, they are asking for things like the ability to um, nominate, have, have more access to nominate their own directors, to have, um, you know, to have control over proxy ballot language. Um, and, or um, even later on to be able to use um, corporate funds instead of having to use their own personal funds uh, to actually run these elections. Um, one of the big advantages that management, that managers of big companies have is that they're able to, they can control the nomination process. They get to say who gets nominated. They're the one that appears if you ever get your, you know, annual uh, result, any annual proxy for the annual meeting. They they are the ones who list the names of candidates because they picked them. Um, they are the ones who actually are able to respond to proxy resolutions and can actually um, speak with greater volume because they're entrenched. Um, and so some of these activists are like, that's not really democratic. Uh, it, it would be like, in their analogy of it, it would be like if the federal government sent you a ballot and you said, this is, and these are exactly who, these are the people you can vote for, no more, no less. Um, if you want to make a different one, you have to do a verbal nomination at the annual meeting. And, and it's, it's so for some of these shareholders, are like, this is undemocratic. And we, and they very much are like, well, we live in a democracy, so our corporation should be democratic too. Well, can you, Name any particularly influential activists in this right. movement. All right. Um, and so uh, the first, the, I really kind of focus on a, a handful of actors. Um, Louis Gilbert, his brother John Gilbert, Wilma Porter Sauce are the sort of three core that really, um, I, you, I'm not going to say that they're like the fathers or the mothers or anything of that of shareholder activism because they're not. Uh, but they are, so, they form this sort of core of, individuals who really did start this, you know, very, at first a small trend. And I think it did kind of remain small, like in some ways they were um, iconoclastic. They didn't, um, you know, at least the Gilberts in particular, they were two brothers who lived in an apartment in Manhattan. And from this position, they attended hundreds of meetings a year and sent out an annual report. And so they really were kind of like a, a two man show. 
they would go to meetings and do this and make their demands. And they would basically, he started attending in about in um, 1938 and he attends annual meetings up until about 1983. Um, and even then he would still show up afterwards, but that's when he was doing it as a sort of professional shareholder. He would show up to hundreds of meetings a year, he and his brother. Wilma Sauce was very similar, except she started her own organization, the Federation of Women Shareholders in American Business. Um, and so that, and again, that was an effort to sort of organize shareholders. Her argument was is that, um, you know, women form at any given point in time, almost half of all shareholders. Uh, in some companies, they're a majority. In some companies, they're a plurality. Um, and part of this is that, like, well, if women are half the shareholders, boards of directors should have more women on them. Uh, and I think that's that, like, that one demand kind of, leached into this other representative argument about, you know, that she makes the same kind of democratic argument. We want to have more opportunities to vote, uh, make it easier to nominate uh, the, the directors that we like, uh, the kinds of directors we want to see. And they sort of form this um, early core of activism. They're later joined by um, a sort of a, a more famous firebrand, Evelyn, uh, Evelyn Davis, who I think, um, might sound familiar to some. She also regularly showed up at annual meetings, uh, and she, um, I'm trying. Like she is an activist. She has demand. She makes demands of these companies. She wants certain reforms. Um, her reforms, a lot of it, tend to be um, interestingly enough. Um, and this, I think, kind of shows that shareholder activism. Even if you're pushing for something that's not just profit, you can still be pushing for conservative ends. Because her big thing is that she wants to end charitable contributions. She wants to end educational contributions. Uh, because in some sense, like starting in the mid '70s, she's like, "Look, you're giving all these money to colleges, churning out all these long-haired hippies and communists, etc., and we need to stop that." Um, so, uh, she, so those th those four people kind of formed like this early core. They're later joined on by other people who um, look a bit like might be more noteworthy. Saul Alinsky uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, kind of you know famed uh, community organizer, uh, author of um, Rules for Radicals. Uh, if you, uh, so he, he gets in on this shareholder activism thing in the proxy campaigns. And what he does is he convinces churches who, uh, you know, he tries to organize in churches and, you know, by the, even before the 20th century, but by the mid to late 20th century, churches own a substantial amount of shares. Um, they're gifted to them. They buy them outright. They use them as part of their own investment practices to fund their operations. So they actually end up owning a, a fair bit of companies. Uh, and so he goes to them, he says, you know, you really shouldn't be investing in companies that engage in racial discrimination or engage in you know, or are uh, making war uh, weapons, weapons of war. You know, it seems kind of unchristian. Uh, at least that's what you say on the pulpit. How can you, uh, if you come up on the pulpit on Sunday and say we want, we're for peace and we're for equality, and then on Monday morning you buy and trade in companies that are discriminatory. And he, you know, Alinsky doesn't like magically change uh, churches of this. Like churches kind of, come, a lot of churches have kind of come to this uh, realization on their own. Um, he talked like Alinsky helps to tie these church activists with civil rights activists um, to kind of push for these reforms. And then even later figures in the seventies, um, Ralph Nader um, comes in on this bandwagon of saying, well, you know, maybe we can't actually, you know, he says, well, we've tried reforming government, uh, but we, it just as powerful as big government is big business. 
And so we're going, and so he uh, has his own sort of campaign at GM. It's called the campaign to reform General Motors or just campaign GM. He buys a handful of shares. He goes to meetings and he has these proposals using the proxy process, shows up at the annual meeting, tries to get um, in other institutional investors like universities. Universities are like churches and in that they have endowment funds. Those funds go, some have to be in, invested somewhere. And what's a safer investment than, you know, GM, the largest manufacturing company in America. Um, and so he tries to get them to do that too. And they have their own sort of universities face the same kind of conflict that churches do. But like, you know, some of their members are like, you claim to be training us for this, you know, to be moral. Uh, and we think this is immoral and we think it's immoral for you to invest in it. Um, and so these individuals, some of them go on to form organizations uh, with churches. Um, in particular, I look at the, uh, the National Council of Churches of Christ forms their own organization called the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility. And this spurs, out, uh, spurs off from the, uh, you know, some of the anti-war movement um, and it kind of gains power and says, well, there's more than just war that we're on, that we don't want to support with our investments. There's other concerns. Um, and th those are those aforementioned, um, they could be, you know, um, environmental concerns, discriminatory concerns. Um, they uh, have um, the ICCR uh, has, is concerned about the portrayals of violence in television. So they show up in, at RCA meetings and say, look, we show too much violence on NBC and we would like you to stop or to do a report on it. Really, They want to study how many hours of it so they can come back and make more intelligent demands. And then they also become big players in the anti-apartheid movement. And so these are the, uh, um, these are sort of the act, different actors. And so you can get sort of on one hand, individuals who are sort of independently wealthy, like the Gilberts, I haven't quite, I haven't got access to their accounts or bank sheets, but based upon the kind, the numbers of shares they own and the variety of the different companies, so people who are independently wealthy, uh, they're probably, if I had to hazard a guess in the low, they're like low level millionaires in the single digits, which I guess, you know, to me is pretty rich, but you know, if you're CEO of a, of a major company, maybe not quite. Um, same, similarly with sauce. These are people who are independently wealthy and have the resources to travel to 200, 300 meetings a year. But then it also grows to include um, more middle class and working class groups as well. Um, and other kinds of organizations that are not traditionally associated with great wealth. So, you know, churches, um, labor unions get involved in it in certain instances. Um, colleges themselves are, are viewed as like wealthy, but like not the same way like college students would be pushing and advocating for colleges to change. So it really does kind of become, at least there's an effort and not a chance in the late seventies when it, it goes from being this small thing where you have, you know, a handful of professional independent shareholders who go to these meetings and will testify at Congress and issue reports and give interviews to including more to creating an opportunity for more grassroots actors to get more people involved in it at this level, to get more people to go to meetings, to get more people to push for reform uh, uh, in these corporations. How does this movement appear in the archive? Uh, particularly what Hagley collections are you using to tell the story? Right. Um, and so here's the interesting thing. Um, so uh, the Hagley does have access to some of these, some of the Gilbert reports. Um, what I've been, what I've been using for, um, uh, what I've been actually using the Hagley for is that I wanted to see how businesses were, were responding to them. Um, one of the interesting demands that these activists 
that the shareholder activists make way from the beginning, like one of the very first demands is that they want better annual reports. You know, an annual report that a you know, every company has to have an annual report. It's required by the SEC. Uh, and they often also have quarterly reports as well. And so what the Hadley has provided me is an opportunity to look at the annual and quarterly reports from a couple, a handful of companies. I picked, I picked the companies that were one at the Hagley, but also like big companies that were targets of activism. So I picked, you know, the DuPont company. Uh, I picked uh, General Motors, uh, RCA, and U.S. Steel were sort of the big four companies I looked at. Um, and these were, in some ways, the biggest companies of the 20th century. Uh, so it's a pretty good example, uh, <laughs> a pretty good uh, cross-section. And so what I did is I looked at these annual reports or their quarterly reports to one, compare them with what the Gilberts and Sauce and other activists are saying uh, to see, you know, they're asking, well, at this annual meeting, we want them to, uh, you know, adopt a resolution that um, allows for cumulative voting. Cumulative voting is a practice of basically, I won't get too into the weeds, but the idea is that with cumulative voting, it's easier for shareholders to um, get their own, to get to vote for their own kind of nominees. It's, it's, a, it's a practice that uh, protects minority shareholders because it gives them more votes for the boards of directors. So they can po pool their votes on one guy. So they're more likely to get their own representative in there. Um, and so that's one, so that'd be an example of something they're asking for. And so they would say that in their report or they would present it at the interview in an interview with a newspaper or a speech or something like that. And so what I wanted to do with the hack was I said, well, okay, how do companies receive this? How do the boards of directors who are at the specific meeting receive these things? How do share fellow shareholders at these meetings receive these things? And with annual reports and quarterly reports, um, oftentimes they would include shareholder meeting minutes. Uh, they would include examples of people asking these questions. And so you, and, and what's fun is that, you know, one of the complaints that uh, they have is that with these reports is that they're not very informative. One thing you can track by looking at annual reports over the course of 20 to 30 years, 40 years in some instances, is you can actually see how they improve. Uh, and how they begin to include more information and how they begin to include the kinds of information that these activists are asking for. Uh, the other thing that you can kind of see is, and that I found really fascinating, is how sometimes, um, sometimes some of these companies would refer to the share these activists by name and they would include their arguments. And the shareholders really like this because for them, this is an opportunity for as far as they see, it's like, this is a way for other shareholders to know what's happening at the company. Like, it's not just dollars and cents. It's, oh, there's actually sort of, there's some democratic potential there. There's an opportunity for people to come and have their voice heard, make demands, ask questions, and possibly see change. And so for the activists, it's like, we want to see our names in these annual reports so that other people know that we're doing what we're doing. Um, and potentially join us, because they should, because, you know, this is a good movement to be a part of. Um, at least that's their thought process, but companies didn't do it. And we, I mean, we can surmise, well, one, we don't want to encourage, like for as far as from the management perspective is that we don't, they weren't ter I'm sure I can imagine that they weren't terribly interested in encouraging more people to come and harass is maybe a strong word, but maybe at some point it's not. Um, some other questions would be kind of, uh, could be barbed. Um, and it's also valuable because, you know, there's, it's one thing to say that these act, it's one thing to say that there are activists. It's a question to say, like, well, how influential were they? How popular were they? 
And sometimes reading through these post, through these quarterly reports or these annual reports, you could get a sense of what other shareholders thought. And in some companies, I think other shareholders were receptive to what the Gilberts and Sauce, the later church activists and anti-war activists, they were more dismissive of because they were seen as rabble rousers and outsiders, whereas the the Gilberts and Sauce, E.Y. Davis to an extent, were tolerated because they were always there. They were considered more traditional investors instead of people who were buying shares for political reason. Um, and you can get a sense of, like, you know, so sometimes they were tolerated. And they're like, okay, they ask good questions. They ask about accounting. They ask about auditing. They ask about um, opportunities to make it easier to uh, change up directorship if necessary. So that's fine. We'll tolerate that. Other times, though, they really get, uh, you can really get a sense in reading these reports that other shareholders were actually getting really tired of this shtick. They're like, like, you know, you have certain meetings where they would be like, we would propose a rule that we would limit uh, one, each speaker, one question per meeting or like a, a three minute max. Like, so you could also read and get the sense that, okay, they're tired of actually having the same people come every single year asking very similar questions, introducing very similar resolutions. And they would always get enough support. They always had enough support that they could keep reintroducing these resolutions, but never quite enough support to like outright win a vote against the will of management. So this, I, so in a sense, it's nice to kind of capture that sense of frustration that some shareholders had. Um, so yeah, so that was that's those are the. Um, in addition to looking at those quarterly reports, um, I had also uh, taken a look through the um, National Association of Manufacturing papers. Um, one because the Hagley has a great collection, has a lot, of, and and the NAM was heavily involved in basically everything. Like they had a view on a wide variety of different policies. Um, and so I was somewhat interested in seeing um, what their views were on sort of the act, what, what, what did they view shareholding? Um, and to kind of elaborate on that, um, you know, for my activists, they thought they were like, the role of shareholding is like, we live in a political democracy. We should have an economic democracy. To have an economic democracy, you have to have broad participation of people in voting and making choices and coming to these meetings and doing that kind of stuff. They, they, they saw that as their role. And I was wondering to see like, well, I, I, how did the NAM think about investing? What did they kind of see as the role of shareholding? And obviously I think that's kind of a tricky question for an organization as big as the NAM that has run as long as it has to kind of get a single answer on. Um, some of the stuff I looked at is like, well, they, you know, the NAM encouraged investment clubs, you know, for people, this is a phenomenon throughout the 20th century, my, my grandmother belonged to one, uh, where people come together, they pool the resources, they buy stocks, and it's, it's a social activity, but it's also an activity that you can make money off of it. Um, and they would encourage that kind of thing. And they would, or they would encourage uh, workers to save you know, to buy stocks in the companies that they worked for or for housewives to buy stocks because it's like, it's a sound investment. You know, you make more, you, you know, it, it, um, you know, you make more money buying shares than you would sticking it in the bank. Um, especially because if it, depending on interest rates. Um, and so they were sort and so their attitude was you should invest and you should invest purely as sort of like a commercial activity is like a way to build up some extra money to, to secure some funding for yourself. But they didn't really to what I had found through the, they didn't seem terribly interested in encouraging people to go to annual meetings or to inform people about how proxies work or uh, things that my active, the activists that I study 
uh, do do. Uh, in their reports, they're like, this is how shareholding works. Uh, this is how, these are the rights that you have as a shareholder. Whereas, you know, it's like, they're like, yes, of course you can make money off of investing. And that's what, you, that's one reason why you invest. But the other reason is, is that it gives you, it gives you oversight. It gives you an opportunity to uh, check corporate power or to check uh, uh, bad management. Whereas I think for um, the NAM, from what I'm looking at through some of their materials, that's just not something that they're interested in telling people about. I mean, it, 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 I don't assume any kind of malign motives. I think it's just sort of something that wasn't necessarily on their radar. Um, and, you know, it, it, and so it's always, uh, um, yeah, just my not, it's just not something that I think that they were really, it, I didn't get the sense that they were pushing for it. Maybe if I had gone back and looked through more individual meetings, I might have found something. But I think that instead that they were more interested as an investment as like a way to you know, support individuals and kind of tie people to like this growing economy that they wanted to encourage, with, you know, manufacturing and business. Well, as you were in the archives, uh, do you have any particularly exciting discoveries? Yes. Um, and in, this was in the NAM papers. It wasn't written by NAM. It wasn't something that came from the NAM, but it was in um, their files. Uh, I looked at, I found something, uh, that was about uh, plant closures, which is, you know, for people who study American manufacturing, well, people who are familiar with American manufacturing, a lot of plants closed in the Midwest in the late 70s and early 80s. And this was a big problem. And so, you know, the NAM has all of these different kinds of responses and like, how do, how do we deal with uh, uh, plant closures? And interestingly enough, some of the activists I study also had their own ideas about plant closures. And one thing that they um, one thing that uh, actually comes out of this is um, what was called the Corporate Democracy Act, which was put together by Public Citizen. And Public Citizen was not, it, Public Citizen, I believe it was not specifically founded by Ralph Nader. It was founded by Ralph Nader's people. It's a consumer activist um, organization that's interested in environmentalism, political corruption, um, corporate corruption, uh, you know, a wide variety of different reforms. And so in the NAM papers, I found a really nice piece. Uh, uh, it's, it's a piece of proposed legislation that they're going to propose to be, uh, that was being enacted and it's called the Corporate Democracy Act. And the basic sense, of, and what I found really fascinating and really cool about this is that it was useful for me to put sort of like a pin and you can actually see, this is, in, this is proposed in about in 1980. And the language that they use is about corporate democracy and it's about shareholder democracy in this and what they talk about is empowering shareholders through the regulatory apparatus um, through a national regulatory apparatus to be able to check management on concerns through using you know sort of democratic processes and they mention things um, and what I they so they mentioned things like um, they push for a lot of the same reform like a lot of the um, kinds of reforms that Gilbert and Sauce were pushing in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. They were around for a while, so they've been pushing it for a while um, about control over the proxy mechanism, the ability to use corporate funds to fund um, outside directors, um, the opportunity to name director that for shareholders to name their own directors and not just have it be the management slate um, for the opportunity. Uh, so creating a um, national regulation that all companies have to adopt cumulative voting, which I mentioned earlier, to have um, specific dedicated 
committees to report on environmentalism, consumer protection, um, equal employment, and things like that. So this idea of, and, and we all with this idea of like making the corporation more democratic, giving more information to shareholders so that shareholders would be able to make more intelligent demands about the corporation, that the corporate and that the management and the board of directors would be more representative of the shareholder interests through democratic policies and practices. And so it was really cool just to find that. Um, because I, 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 it would have been even better, I guess, if it, had, if it had, had like NAM, like if someone from the NAM had like read this and earmarked it and on writ, written on it, whether or not they liked those proposals, because then I could have this extra added piece of information to like how they responded to it. Because that was just, this is just a single thing that existed in this folder. But at the same time, it's really fascinating because I hadn't heard of this. There's there was some talk of like certain regulations, but I never know, knew that they got down to like literally proposing a law. Law doesn't pass. Uh, Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, it was really just great to get to see this and to see have like a really useful document that is in many ways captures and uses the same language that reformers and activists have been using for the past 40 years before this. Uh, and so that you can in some ways see that it's see that sort of it's, it's useful because it kind of, in some ways it shows the ongoing strength of these demands that you can have organizations that keep, that can be appealing to people and reformers. And in also some ways it also kind of shows the difficulty of actually reform of actually creating shareholder democracy, that it is something that would that uh, more than just a handful of activists or institutions may in fact actually take sort of a national change through legislation to create these changes. Um, so but that was, I think that was kind of my, I mean, I found other interesting stuff too, but I think that that was really sort of like the most, that was the nicest find for me, like just being able to get this piece and being able to see something that was like in so many ways, just reiterating what earlier reformers and activists had already been saying and just having it nice in this bound volume in this one thing that captures all of that language, captures all of that sort of ideology. Yeah. Well, what was the impact of the shareholder activism movement on the trajectory of corporate America through the 20th century and even into the 21st? So it's, in some ways, it's, 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 I think that the, the big influence that it has is that in, in some ways it, if the question is, is were they ever able to get a resolution to pass to like really bring management to check to like, like you have to, like, you're going to have to support this. They don't have a lot of successes like that. They never, uh, I don't think uh, it's actually incredibly hard to win a proxy vote that way. Um, the influence though is in one making a record in, in encouraging and recognizing that corporations can be side of political contestation to internally that they can be reformed internally, that they can be um, pushed to make changes. Um, even, if you, even if you don't actually win the resolution on, um, a, on getting out of South Africa, it's something that by putting these kinds of resolutions on the board and constantly getting them out there year in and year out, it's something that management actually has to kind of come up with something. Maybe we're not going to leave South Africa, but, maybe, but we'll... Like, so we're not going to get rid of get out of South Africa. We'll stop giving stuff to the police. Or uh, maybe, 
you know, we're not going to get out of South Africa, but our factories aren't going to follow the same rules of segregation that South Africa has. Um, so these smaller changes or um, a big thing that they're able to get is uh, a lot of times a lot of activists ask for reports because reports are something that they can sort of tan like they can get a study on, they can get a tangible report on it and they can uh, basically take this and one, bring it to the next meeting and be like, well, you did a study on your environmental impact and this is what you found. What are you doing to fix it? Um, and so you do see companies in, uh, take steps to install more, um, you know, environmentally friendly practices regarding the disposal of solid waste or installing, um, you know, safer equipment for um, filtering out uh, chemicals so they don't go into the water supplies. But it's also something they can turn around and give to legislators uh, and go and take this to Congress. It's like, well, we got, you know, DuPont to study the impact of their chemical processing plants, and this is what they found. And we want you to pass stricter laws to change that. Um, and so some of that, and so this idea of like making it's, you know, pro, uh, politics is the long uh, moving of hard boards. I always, I'm terrible at that quote. Uh, but it's in some ways, it's like it's a long, slow, steady process of pushing for change and compromise. Uh, so maybe not, maybe these reformers aren't able to get the exact change that they wanted to, but they're able to get something. Uh, whether it's studies on, whether it's studies, whether it's small changes in, pol uh, in policy, whether it's the implementation of um, certain reforms in terms of hiring or um, advancement for minorities or women, um, things like that. These kinds of small changes that are not, you know, that management might not have done on its own or might have not even th thought to done on its own. But now because of this pressure from, from activists, they make these kinds of changes. And so this is something that I think as, I mean, the, the question of like, how do, how best to handle big corporations is kind of the, one of the big questions of the 20th and 21st century. And one answer that my, one answer that these activists have is that, well, shareholders are the way to do it. Um, if you're concerned about uh, distant management, well, this is one way to do it. And that is not maybe as heavy handed as having a national uh, legislation um, or uh, something like that, but as seen as a way to check it. Um, and, you know, it, it, to some extent, um, yeah. And so I think that that's one of the big things that they can kind of demonstrate is like a path forward of how to reform corporations and that this and shareholder activism is one way of doing it. Um, may not always be pretty, or it, it may not have the, the, like, you know, the home run success that we might really, that we might really like, but it is this like on, kind of teaching people that it's an ongoing process of something that you can do. What is it like, like to do nut research or pack pack? Um, what's it like? I mean, it's, it's one, it's really nice to kind of be, one thing I kind of like about the Hagway is that it's kind of, in some ways isolated from like these other things. It's often this kind of like remote place. You have your own place to stay and you can kind of just like focus exclusively on your research. Uh, you know, you get up in the morning in, a, in an old house, you walk past uh, an old DuPont estate. It's really pretty and lush. And then you walk into the archives and you can just kind of work. Um, and then when you leave, you get to kind of get the same repeat and you can feel kind of productive. So that's one thing. I actually just like the physical space of it is nice. This kind of way that you can be, outside of it. But the other thing is, is that um, there's a lot of really good 
institutional knowledge there. Um, you know, a lot, like the archivists are really good and knowledgeable about their materials. And to some extent, I know for me, like I have guesses about what might be found in the archive. And I have certain things that I might know what to look for based upon other things that I've read. You know, that's kind of how his research works. Like you read one thing, they use a particular kind of language or phrase, and you're like, well, do other people use this? Is, can I use this to find something else? Um, and so, you know, it's useful to go to an archivist. And I think one, one person, I believe, I believe her name is Ashley Williams. She's the one who's doing the NAM papers, the NAM collection. And those are being resorted right now. And so it was great for me just to be, just to say, these are the kinds of things I'm looking for. Like I'm interested in what they're saying about investments. What are the folders I should be looking at? Because I don't, strictly speaking, know how the NAM organized itself. But it's, so it's really useful to be able to go to an archivist who does know how the NAM is organized and be able to say like, yeah, this is where you, these are the kinds of departments. These are the internal departments where they're gonna find this kind of stuff. Um, and we're like, even literally like at one point where I'm sitting in the soda house and soda house is where a lot of these uh, archives are housed. Um, and uh, she's sitting behind me going through the NAM papers. And at one point she says, oh, Brian, here's, here's something about uh, it creating employee ownership, shared ownership of companies, like an employee stock options. And she handed it to me and I was like, oh, this is kind of nice. Like you're looking through it. And so like, um, you know, it's a, you know, companies in the 20th century, decided that maybe we want our employees to be shareholders too, and they would give them stock options. Um, and this was seen, well, depending on who's doing it, I mean, employer employees liked it because it's a benefit. It's a nice, extra more money. Um, it's something that they can supplement their retirement with. Uh, management liked it because it was seen as making, you know, turning employees into owners, because if you're a share owner, you are an owner of the company now. And so they thought this would be a good way of saying like, Hey, when the company does well, you do even better now. And so that, and so it, but it also presents this opportunity of like, well, if you have a bunch of employees now who own the company and their shareholders, in theory, they can start going to these meetings and start making proposals. And this is something that this piece doesn't even get into that, but that's something that comes up in the sixties and seventies and eighties. And even today, like employee pensions are a big, big chunk of investments. And so you can have unions like CalPERS uh, or union funds like CalPERS be big players in companies. Uh, the, uh, I think um, CalPERS famously forced out a change in management at a Ford or General Motors, uh, one of the car companies a while back. Um, and so this was like a really just nice piece that I would never have found. Probably because I wouldn't have looked for it. I wouldn't have thought to look for it, but you have, you're working side by side with archivists. And if you talk with them about what they're researching, they will help you out. And they will just like hand you these nice little finds where she's just like, here you go, Brian, here's a report on employee stock ownership that the NAM conducted in like the mid to late forties. I like to say that research is a smart Right, exactly. Brian, thank, thank you so much, so much for speaking with me and for sharing your work with us. Quite fast. Hmm. I mean, it's 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 always great to talk with people about your research. I think um, because oftentimes you don't get the opportunity to, and so it's just it was nice, and it also helped. It's helpful for me, and I'm sure everyone else feels this way too. Is that talking about your research helps you reach new conclusions about your research? Because as you say these things out loud, you know things start firing off in your brain, where you're like, oh right, that's what I'm thinking of, or that's why they're doing this, or maybe that's how I can write about it. So yeah, no, it's it's great. I was always happy to talk.
where the audience, if you'd like more information on the program, or the Hyperion's Human Library, go to our website, and Brian, thank you once more. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good morning.